Welcome to Financial Crime Matters with Kieran Beer. I'm Kieran Beer, Chief Analyst and Director of Editorial Content for ACAMS, world's largest membership organization for anti-financial crime professionals. In this episode of Financial Crime Matters, I talk with John Sifton, Advocacy Director at Human Rights Watch, and Patty Gossman, Associate Director of the Asia Division of Human Rights Watch. John and Patty talk about the current total breakdown of the economy in Afghanistan in the wake of the Taliban takeover, and the fact that millions of Afghans are now facing hunger and even starvation. They discuss the current sanctions that the Taliban faces and the need to restart the Afghan Central Bank if the country is to address what has become a dire situation. I hope you find the podcast informative and will subscribe either on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Spotify, or SoundCloud. Here we go. Well, it is a real privilege for me today to be here with John Sifton and Patty Gossman from Human Rights Watch to discuss the really dire humanitarian situation in Afghanistan. John, Patty, thanks for being here. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. So, Patty, if I can start with you, tell me a little bit about how bad the situation is in Afghanistan now. The statistics themselves are just frightening. Save the Children, one of the main humanitarian groups that have been working there for decades, describes it like this, that up to one-fifth of families in Afghanistan are sending their children out to work because they simply don't have enough food to feed the family. Something like one of three families in Afghanistan is facing severe food insecurity, which is, you know, the other way you might say that it is facing starvation or skipping meals or suffering from severe malnutrition. You know, I think when people think about uh, humanitarian crises, they have a picture of big cargo planes having to come in stuffed with bags of wheat that get distributed to villagers. And, you know, of course, there's some of that, but it's really, you know, the picture you have to get is of people who middle class or lower middle class, working people that suddenly lost their income and most importantly, have lost access to their savings, to their bank accounts, to their ability to just pay for the things they need, like fuel, food, housing. And I don't think you can really grasp the severity of it until you, you consider that this whole state that was built after 9-11 in Afghanistan, after the U.S. intervened and invaded and set up, basically built the state, was something like 75 to 80 percent dependent, entirely dependent for public sector, you know, institutions on foreign aid. So education was foreign funded, healthcare, almost entirely foreign funded, other essential kind of government services, the electricity grid, foreign funded. And suddenly in August, after the Taliban takeover, it's like somebody just unplugged everything and that doesn't exist anymore. It was a, a state that was fragile from the beginning, and now it has all come down because of this complete cutoff of foreign funding and then, of course, the sanctions, which we'll get to. So, John, talk about the current sanctions regime, what it looks like, how it started. Sure. The sanctions on Afghanistan are an important part of the economic crisis, but they aren't the root cause. But it's important to get an understanding of what's going on with them before addressing the larger issue of the banking crisis writ large. The sanctions on Afghanistan that are applicable are old sanctions from 1998, imposed after the 1998 bombings in Africa of two U.S. embassies. They're imposed on the Taliban as a group, 
and its leadership, not on the government of Afghanistan, not on the state of Afghanistan, not on the central bank of Afghanistan, none of that, just on the Taliban. As a result of those sanctions, when the Taliban came into power and seized control of government ministries, a lot of banks became very reluctant to engage in transactions, even with private actors that are not sanctioned entities, because they thought that maybe somehow they would be subject to treasury fines, treasury punishments, one way or another. That reluctance was overcompliance in our view, but regardless, the U.S. Treasury did feel compelled ultimately to issue a slew of general licenses and guidance papers to give banks more comfort in engaging in those transactions. And some of them now are. So money is moving to private banks in Afghanistan for beneficiary account holders like humanitarian groups and private Afghan actors and regular commercial businesses. Western Union is now able to send money to its correspondent banks there for distribution. But that's not solving any of the larger macroeconomic problems and liquidity problems that the central bank is facing, because the central bank has been cut off from the international banking system, not pursuant to sanctions, but pursuant to a political decision to not recognize it as the central bank of Afghanistan. And this is the crucial thing that is now driving the core of the economic crisis, not the sanctions. So this really gives us a chance to use as kind of almost a examples of what you mean to drill down on this is last week's move by the Biden administration to basically take $7 billion in frozen assets that the Afghan Central Bank that were being held, that were being frozen, that were the Afghan Central Bank's. And, and then to move them to the New York Fed with the idea of, you know, half of that money going to humanitarian aid and half to settle claims against the Taliban and the Haqqani network for terror attacks. That seemed like splitting the baby or something. And I think you're saying there's some issues here about provenance that that money belonged to the Central Bank of Afghanistan and what was sort of a political move to appease various sides. Talk about what the actual effect of that is. Yeah, and I think also I will, and Patty should probably comment on just how egregious it is in the context of the fact that Afghan civilians have been victims of the Taliban and of al-Qaeda in ways that should be addressed as well as a political level. But on that decision, there's been some misreporting by the media about exactly what happened. What happened was that the assets of the Central Bank of Afghanistan, which were already in New York, the New York Fed and a set of accounts, were consolidated into an account, seized and consolidated in one account, so they now belong to the United States of America. What the Biden administration essentially said was that they will take half of that money and utilize it in unspecified ways for the benefit of the Afghan people. Now, a lot of people thought that meant sending it to a trust fund to be spent by the UN for humanitarian assistance. But that is erroneous. That's not what the U.S. meant. The U.S. didn't actually specify what they meant. And they could mean anything from that to helping capitalize the Afghanistan bank to stabilize the economy and restore some liquidity and you know rescue the economy. That's also to the benefit of Afghan people perhaps not very palatable politically in the United States, but that that's, remains on the table. And subsequently, a senior State Department official acknowledged that they might be able to utilize it in that way, among others. The other 3.5 was not given to the plaintiffs in the 9-11 litigation. Rather, it was just put aside pursuant to litigation to see if that litigation you know, would subsequently give the money to them. 
in reality, this is not a human rights issue, but in reality, the case law for the plaintiffs is not very strong. The money that was taken arguably does not belong to the Taliban. The Taliban is the defendant, and the money belongs to the Central Bank of Afghanistan. There's pretty strong case law, U.S. law, that says that central bank assets can't be seized to satisfy a judgment in cases like this, which is why, you know, in similar cases with Iran, for instance, it's taken a very long time for plaintiffs to try to convince courts to allow central bank of Iran assets to be paid out. So it's quite possible that money will never be paid out to the plaintiffs because it's not the Taliban's. And in the meantime, it'll just sit in the New York Fed. We've said all along, look, there's a lot of litigation. It's going to take a long time. Let's not focus on this money right now. People are starving. There's $1.1 billion at the World Bank in the form of a trust fund there that's available to spend on humanitarian assistance. The Qatar government might be willing to capitalize the bank. Let's focus on the money that is available right now and try to get that moving into the Afghan economy. And to do that, that's not an issue of sanctions, not an issue of a decision about the Federal Reserves. That's an issue about the credentials of the central bank, which is why we continue coming to that as the singular issue. I can see that. Uh, that's interesting. That's very clear. Uh, Patty, did you want to add something on this? Well, I think, as John said, the idea this money was going to be split and it was in some way might end up as compensation for 9-11 for the, the families of the victims sparked almost universal outrage across Afghanistan including among a lot of people who are really unhappy and suffering under the Taliban rule right now. Because as John said, here they are. They've been victims of this whole war and of Taliban abuses and bombings, and they aren't being compensated by anyone, nor have they been compensated the vast majority of cases for bombings by U.S. forces or the rest of it. So the unfairness of it has really struck a, a very raw nerve for many, many Afghans who've really been the greatest victims of this whole conflict. At the same time, there was outrage among humanitarian groups who hear this. And I was on a call this morning with some of them talking about their ongoing problems, as John mentioned, to get you know, to pay people. They're trying to send in money to pay their employees who are doing things like working in clinics with all these malnourished children coming in, you know, who are running some schools or trying to get money to some of the teachers in the schools that are open and, and all these things are moving food and trying to pay for the fuel for the trucks and paying for fuel for the generators in the hospital. They can't move the money through the banks. Everybody's using now Hawala systems, but you cannot, as an individual, take out very much money from a bank at any given time. You can't take out more than, I think it's $300 per week which makes it very difficult for people to pay their rent and, and all the other things they need. So the banking crisis really is the top of the agenda for people, and they're not seeing it being addressed, which is causing enormous frustration and suffering. So let me ask about controls and oversight. You've made this very clear argument that we need to empower the Central Bank of Afghanistan. There's still some concern about what money goes to the Taliban. Uh, you know, Human Rights Watch is, is obviously concerned about not rewarding any kind of behavior from the Taliban that is a violation of human rights standards. What do we need to do, I can put it more clearly, to both address this crisis and not reward the Taliban? On the table right now is two proposals. One is the possibility of ring-fencing the central bank, saying it's an independent bank, it's independent of Taliban control, and it will subject itself to robust oversight by outside auditors 
overseen by the World Bank and thereby allow a system where the money, whatever it's sourced, is capitalized into the bank in the form of either capitalization or just deposits, like money put on deposit. And the auditors ensure that the money is spent for what it's intended to be spent on. So if you give them $100 million to do X, X gets done and it doesn't you know, get skimmed. There's issues about the foreign exchange and making sure there's no skimming there. All that has to be addressed. It's complicated, but that's the rough idea, ring fencing the central bank and then allowing the money to go in. The United States government is probably reluctant to engage in this on political grounds because they will take a political hit. There will be members of Congress and the media saying you're giving money to the Taliban. It'll be very difficult to explain to them that with robust oversight, that's not the case. So they may perhaps seek to use an intermediary through the World Bank, give the money to the World Bank, to a trust fund, and then the World Bank is giving it to them. But that's a hit they may not be willing to take because they're not brave enough or they're too cowardly to you know, face the music on this. The other option, which is less palatable, is some kind of shadow central bank where a private bank is given basic central bank powers. A lot of people have been talking about this. We're not economists, but it sounds like it's not tenable. It sounds like you might be able to do it for smaller scale things, like maybe just for humanitarian transactions, but you cannot scale up a private bank to act like a central bank for the purposes of the entire national economy on a macro economic level. It's just too much money and the institutions that exist are just not equipped, even with international support, to be like a central bank. And then even if you could do that, there's certain things only a central bank can do. Only a central bank has access to the windows at the Federal Reserve and at the World Bank. Only a central bank has the authorities to authenticate its own currency. And that's another issue down the line. Eventually, we're going to need more paper Afghani currency. What's in circulation is going to decay, but it's also going to lose value as deflation occurs. And eventually, you're going to need more banknotes. And they're printed, unfortunately, outside of the country. That gets you back to some sanctions issues. But point is, only a central bank can take possession of and distribute its own currency. So a shadow central bank, some private bank, isn't going to work. So maybe there's like a hybrid, all kinds of options on the table. The point is, the Treasury Department and the World Bank and the Taliban and the Central Bank of Afghanistan have to sort this out. There's not enough urgency being brought to this. And the actors in question are not moving with the alacrity that the severity of the crisis demands. They should be going out to Doha and Kabul and talking about this on an urgent basis because people are starving every day. Patty, John has given you the arguably difficult task of, or certainly controversial task of, what the world's engagement should be with the Taliban. And certainly they are there to stay for the foreseeable future. So any thoughts on that? Well, I think the question really is, what other choice is there? What we've laid out is that humanitarian aid is insufficient to replace the functioning of a central bank and a, a normal state's economy. And as you said, the Taliban are there. And if there is, I mean, I think nobody doubts that there has to be this kind of ring fencing and monitoring and holding the Taliban accountable for funds sent. But there isn't another option unless you're going to see an entire nation sort of suffer the, this kind of collective punishment for something that they didn't even bring on themselves. So I think that we accept that's a point we start from. Uh, the Taliban also, among them, have people who, you know, they're aware of great unhappiness in their population aware of the 
need to be seen as delivering something to the population. I wouldn't say that that's a universally held belief among some of the leaders, but there are some technocrats and some among them who see the importance of this, see that down the road it could really lead to even more problems for their attempts to govern, and they want to be seen as a legitimate government. Whether they will depends on many other factors, including their human rights record. But there is self-interest on the part of the Taliban to solve this. So again, insisting on monitoring and accountability mechanisms is essential, but there is a path forward here, I think. I don't know if this is a chance to kind of go on record a little bit and just illuminate for me Human Rights Watch and its whole take on the use of sanctions. There doesn't seem to be an argument here necessarily that we're, we should be totally eliminating sanctions on Afghanistan right away. And often they are a tool, the, the whole Magnitsky Act thing. At Human Rights Watch, we get together among ourselves, the teams from Myanmar, and North Korea, Venezuela, Iran, Yemen, to discuss why we oppose sanctions, uh, why we promote sanctions relief in places like Iran, while we simultaneously calling for targeted economic sanctions on particular people in places like Myanmar, Cambodia, Bangladesh, where we've actually seen them have a, a positive impact. Recently, global Magnitsky sanctions were imposed on several senior Bangladeshi people in the security forces implicated in disappearances and killings and torture. And almost immediately, instances of disappearances stopped. It was amazing. It was like amazing impact of sanctions almost immediately. And we've heard of Bangladeshi people telling us that their security force officials saying that they don't want to serve in the unit that was sanctioned because it might besmirch their reputation and put at risk their careers. So, I mean, these sanctions work when they're done right, but when they're done poorly, they can lead to catastrophic economic effects. And that's what we've seen in Venezuela and in Yemen and now here in Afghanistan. Closing thoughts and not least being advice to the financial institutions about how they should be navigating sanctions. I think you've said a lot about sanctions here and the Afghanistan situation. Sure. I'll go first and then Patty has the last word. I think that, you know, there have been some good people at institutions like the remittance banks, for instance, Western Union, who have really tried hard to keep money flowing because they know that these are legitimate transactions with Afghans trying to send money to their relatives to help them feed their families. I think people need to understand that the vast majority of transactions that people are trying to engage in with people in Afghanistan are completely legitimate. I mean, people are just trying to pay NGOs to do their work, pay uh, their relatives remittances for the money they make overseas. And Afghan commercial entities on the ground are trying to buy food in Pakistan and Uzbekistan. They're trying to buy electricity and you know, send it into the country. There is not some kind of big illicit thing going on here that people need to be afraid of. And moreover, the U.S. Treasury has been crystal clear that they have no intention of robustly going after people and questioning transactions into Afghanistan. I know lawyers get nervous. They need comfort letters. They need assurances and general licenses. But general licenses have been given, and the Treasury has repeatedly given guidances that show that the people should not be worried about this stuff. So instead of just defaulting to flagging transactions to not go through, I think that the burden should be where it is. If nobody's on the list, if it's not a sanctioned entity, transactions should be approved. 
and we should move forward because every single day humanitarian groups are complaining to us that you know they can't get their money it's getting better but they can't have their money but we don't want them turning to the illicit hawala systems the hawaladers who handle money through off the grid networks because a the chance for corruption but b they take eight to ten percent on the dollar so a hundred thousand dollars becomes 90 and uh, you know before you know it you're losing millions and millions of dollars on these transactions so for all that i just want people to understand like there's nothing going on in the illicit economy that afghanistan does have in the form of drug money and things like that they don't use the international banking system so there's really no concern about that patty last word to you Well, we are aware that the U.S. government and other governments are grappling with these issues, and we believe they are, in many cases, in good faith. But what we're not seeing is the sense of urgency this requires. We flagged this issue back in the fall, as did many NGOs and others, that this was a, at that point, looming economic catastrophe. Now we're well into it. We're seeing what we predicted in terms of severely malnourished children and rates of people living on one meal a day and the rest of it. And still the wheels are grinding way too slowly among the governments, particularly on the U.S. government side, that can make the decisions to change this. So that my last word would be that we've run out of time on this now. The Afghan people really have, and there needs to be movement on it immediately to prevent more unnecessary deaths. Patty, John, thanks for being here. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Thanks for listening to my conversation with John Sifton and Patty Gossman from Human Rights Watch. I hope you found what you heard compelling and will subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Spotify, or SoundCloud so that you'll receive an alert for each new podcast. Because financial crime matters to me and to you. See you next time.